specific things in general. What I want to do tonight is talk about, you know, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been a Christian for very long, you know one of the things that we've kind of talked about and have been called to is this idea of being in the world but not of it. What in the world does that mean? And what I want to do is sort of look at a passage tonight. It's actually a prayer that Jesus prays for us to kind of think about this idea of how in the world are we as Christians supposed to relate differently to everything. And so to do that, I want to look at a passage. Send your hand out if you didn't bring a Bible. Uh, John 17, verses 13 to 21. John 17, 13 to 21. And, and, it's, and if you know the Gospels at all, this is where Jesus is right before he's going to die. And in this weird kind of place, Jesus, we sort of get to see Jesus praying for his disciples. And here's, uh, we're kind of catching him mid-prayer, and here's what he, what he prays. He says, but now, Jesus talking, he says to the Father, he says, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also, and this is where Jesus actually prays for you and for me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into what I'm talk about. Let's pray first. Father, we do pray, um, we pray that you would teach us tonight. Lord, uh, apart from you, not only do we have no good thing, but apart from you, we can't learn anything. Apart from you, uh, we can't even apply the things that you've told us in your word. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you for the ways that you are the one who even brings us to a place to believe it. Uh, you're the one who brings us to a place where we actually believe the good news about Jesus. But, Lord, I pray tonight that you would encourage us as we think, of, especially, Lord Jesus, as we think about what you prayed and what you are praying for us even now. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So, uh, again, one last time, we're using Beyonce lyrics to kind of frame our, our series. And here's the song. The song tonight is Ring the Alarm. Uh, here's what she says. She says, Ooh, how can you look at me and not see all the things that I kept only just for you? Oh, is it ooh or oh? That's where I should know this. Anybody? Ring the Alarm fans? None? All right, we'll keep going. Uh, why would you risk it, babe? Is that the price that I pay? I'm going to say oh. But this is my show, and I won't let you go. All it has been paid for, and it's mine. How could you look at me and not see all the things? What's fascinating to me about the song is it's clearly about her looking at her man, and she sort of can't believe that he's cheating on her, right? It's interesting because the Bible actually, James actually has this, this scathing verse for us as Christians where he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is actually enmity with God? And then he goes on, it's in James 4, verse 4, and he goes on to say, don't you understand that God actually looks at you and he has a jealous love for you because he wants you to be his. You are his, but, but my problem, your problem is we don't realize that we're his. We don't realize that we belong to him in all the fullness of what that means, that we no longer live to ourselves. We actually live and relate to everything as those who belong to him and love him. And what I want to do tonight is sort of think about what I love about this passage is we get to actually catch Jesus praying for us. 
You know, I don't know if you're a history person at all, but uh, I've always loved the story of Stonewall Jackson, who's a commander in the 1800s and sort of the Civil War. And he was just like this drunken, he was always a good leader, but he was just for a while just a drunken mess. And I don't know if you ever heard the story about how he kind of, kind of even became a Christian. It's a fascinating story. He's in the camp, and he's drunk. He's had a little bit too much bourbon, and he's walking. But there's this chaplain who's been trying to talk to him about Jesus. And he's, he's had too much bourbon. He's drunk, and he's on his way back to his tent. And as he's on his way back to his tent, he hears this chaplain actually praying out loud to Jesus for him. Praying that Jesus would actually draw him to himself. Praying that Jesus would, would make him a new person and, and save him. And it was through Stonewall hearing that that he actually got convicted and, and, and even began to realize his need for Jesus. And he and the chaplain ended up talking, and that's part of how he became a Christian. But what I love about this passage is this is us actually getting to hear Jesus praying for us. And what I want to think about with you tonight is what is he praying what is he praying, not only in this passage, but the implication is this is what he is praying now for you and for me. You know, it's funny, when we think about Jesus, you, we, you and I don't often think about him that he, that he has, that he's still a man. Just because he's resurrected doesn't mean he's not a man anymore. Sometimes we think of Jesus as like some kind of dementor from Harry, like the spirit kind of Harry Potter thing. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's me. Not like he's sucking our souls, but you know, just like the spirit, not body. You're, anyways... Let's lay that one aside. But we forget that he is still a man who is actually still who still prays for us. Just because we can't hear him doesn't mean that he's not. And what I love about this passage is we actually do get to hear him. So what is he praying? And what's fascinating is he's praying three things for us. And this is what I'm going to look at tonight. Three things. He prays for faithful presence. He prays for radical dependence. And he prays for gospel difference. Okay, we're going to work this out. Faithful presence. Radical dependence. And gospel difference. We're going to work all of these out. But first thing we hear is how he prays for faithful presence. Look at verse 16 if you're looking at it. Or verse 15 if you're looking at it. It's fascinating. He actually prays that the Father would not take us out of the world. This is huge. And he goes on to say, I pray that I'm sending them into the world just, Father, as you have sent me into the world in a mission. And that mission is, Jesus would say, to go and seek and save the lost. This is so, so huge for us to get because typically, and in, in throughout our history of, as just Christians, we typically go one of two directions when we think about the world. I'm going to do a lot of two-stepping tonight, so it'll just get used to it. So on the one hand, Jesus, you know, on the one hand, we think about the world and how we relate to it. A lot of us think about just completely sort of withdrawing from it. We think about being removed from it. We think about sort of just, just kind of coming out and being separate from it. And this is where I think um, of all the... Most of M. Night Shyamalan films are terrible, but there were a couple that were good. Sixth Sense was good, and then The Village is actually, I thought, a decent movie. And if you saw The Village, this is kind of almost an illustration of how this doesn't work. That if you know that movie, part of, part of what this community is doing is trying to withdraw from the world and pretend like this world outside of the walls doesn't exist. Grow up generations of people in this little community pretending like this is the, this is the way the world is, but it's not in the real world. And eventually what they find is you can't actually withdraw from the world because... Because the Bible says that our problem has never been what's outside of us. The problem's always been what's inside of us. That's why G.K. Chesterton, who's one of my favorite apologists, he was kind of the C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis, when the London Times asked people to write in and say what's wrong with the world in 1908, just as World War I was sort of happening, Chesterton sort of had this, this, this sort of genius line where he said, this was his editorial, he wrote into the, into the London Times, and this is simply what he wrote. He said, Dear Sirs, I am... Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I'm what's wrong with the world. And Jesus is saying, Father, do not take them out of the world. 
They, they need to be in the world. And part of this is, and this is where Jesus sort of gives us those illustrations of salt and light. How salt works is it's sort of spread out and it preserves. But if it's not, if salt stays in the salt shaker, it's no good to anything or anyone. The same with light. That's why Jesus has the analogy where he says, if you keep light hidden, it can't, it can't radiate into darkness. It has to, you can't keep light hidden. You can't keep it under sort of the shade or keep it under this box. You have to let the light out into the darkness. And Jesus is saying, for you and me as Christians, we've got to be engaged with the world. And yet on the other side, this is where we struggle. Because the other tendency that you and I go to is to be, so if we try to remove ourselves on this side, the other side of what we do is we try to be too relevant. We try to be too much like the world in the name of winning the world or engaging the world. In other words, I mean, I'll never forget one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with a student where he was a freshman and he was the kid who came in and he was desperately trying, this was at Georgia Southern, but he was desperately trying in every kind of way he could to be cool. And we had this sort of come to Jesus conversation where I was like, listen, you can be cool and lose Jesus and sort of lose your following him and lose your love for him. Or you can sort of accept the fact that he was a Christian will never be cool. That's why I love when Mark Driscoll says, you're not cool, you're a Christian. You and I need to hear that. You're not cool, you're a Christian. And that's why Jesus says, listen, the world is not going to like you. Because the world did not love me. There were people in the world that absolutely, they, they were drawn to me. They were, they were especially, you know, especially when I would go to parties. There were people that Jesus would go to parties that were just drawn to him. There were people who hated him. There are people who looked at Jesus and thought, absolutely, like, not cool, let's stay away from him. And the same is going to happen for you and me. And so sometimes we try to overdo that. We try to sort of, but you know what, there's nothing, that's what I was thinking about today is like, a Christian trying to be cool. All right, so Toms are a big thing. But you know what's, you know what's one of the saddest versions of shoes? Bobs. <laughs> Skechers makes Bobs. And it's like they're trying so hard to be Toms, and they're not Toms. And it's just like they're not, they're just sad. They're sad. I'm sorry if you have Bobs. <laughs> If you have bobs, it's okay. You're, you're a Christian. Of course you have bobs. <laughs> uh, there's a passage that's fascinating in Jeremiah 29 where Jesus, you know, it's fascinating where the Lord, you know, if you know the story of Jeremiah, the people are in exile. They're living in Babylon, which was the city that hated, if there was any city that hated God more than any other, it was Babylon. And Jeremiah, God gives Jeremiah a word to take to the people because they're thinking, we've got to get out of this place and get back to Jerusalem. We've got to get out of this hellhole and get back to the city of God. And in this shocking way, God says to them, no, 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 no. I want you, I want you to build houses. I want you to have babies. I want you to put down roots in this place because I love this city. It's God saying to Jonah, and Jonah looking at Nineveh and thinking, Nineveh? No way I'm going to Nineveh. They're the most godless city on the earth. And God says, but I love Nineveh. I love those people. And I want, you to, how, I want you to be part of them. I don't want you to be like them. You've got to be like me. But I want you to be with them. And that's, gee, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, by the way. The mystery of Christmas, the mystery that we celebrate the incarnation is Emmanuel. You know, this is where you need to go get Sufjan's Christmas album and just listen over and over. O come, O come, Emmanuel. God with us. He's absolutely God, but he's with us. And that's in a sense what God is calling us to, to be, you know, to not be uh, removed from the world, to not be too much like the world, but to be sort of engaging the world. And this is where the idea of faithful, another way of saying it is to be present and to be faithful, to be present in this godless place, but to be faithful to God. That's the calling that you and I have as Christians. And that's the calling for you and for me as Christians. This means three things. This always means three things. To live present in a sort of godless place, 
But to live faithful to him always means three things. Always. Here's the first. It means respectful dialogue. This is something that we are the worst at as Christians sometimes. Where you know, one, of the, one of the most loving things you and I can do is talk to people instead of talking about them. And that's what, always what you're doing in respectful dialogue is you're always sort of, even if you absolutely disagree with their position, you're always affirming that you understand what they're saying and you're always affirming that you understand how they could get there. Even if it's something that, that is as horrible to us as abortion or even if it's something that is horrible to us as, you know, whatever it is, the Bible speaks very clearly to it. Respectful dialogue always means that we, that we can at least on some level respect and understand and represent the best of their position before we try to bring ours to the table. And what you and I typically do as Christians, and the the way that we typically dialogue, is we do the straw man thing. This is why sometimes the Kurt Cameron evangelism is really hard for me. Not to mention that Kurt Cameron came into my Starbucks time when I was in Charlotte and literally did one of the, he tipped with one of like the gospel tracks instead of like actually tipping the baristas. And like they were just, you can imagine if someone tipped you with like one of the, one of the like, here's, it looks like $100, but it's really a gospel track. Like, you're not going to be like, oh, thank you. I really needed that more than $100. Like, it's one of the worst things we could do. So not only were they pissing him for this, but sometimes what we do is we don't, we don't represent the best of the other person's position or the other person's view. And instead we do this sort of straw man thing, and no one's going to listen to us. All we're going to be is this big echo chamber. We're just going to be talking to ourselves because... The world, so to speak, is going to have turned. It's going to turn us. They're going to turn, have turned us off. They're going to have long turned us off. So one respectful dialogue, and the second is real friendship. This always means real friendship. This means that you really are pursuing friendship with people that don't know Jesus. You really are pursuing friendship with people who, who are far from Him. But you're not pursuing them to check it off of your "let me feel better about myself" list. You're not pursuing them to sort of say, this is what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, so let's enter into this relationship. Like, people can smell that from a mile away. You're going to enter into a relationship because you actually love them. And you're going to enter into a relationship because you actually care about them. And you're not going to sort of try to Jesus juke them into every conversation and be like, oh, you like the notebook? Let me tell you about a better love. His name is Jesus, the true and better Ryan Gosling, although he is that in some ways. But you're going to be present with them. You're going to sit with them. You're going to laugh with them. There are going to be, of course, there are going to be things that come up that are different, and maybe, maybe you have a chance to explain why you believe what you believe, but you're going to do it not like an a-hole, you're going to do it like a real human being with humility. Respectful dialogue, real friendship, and then it also means there's a readiness for us to serve with, with other organizations and with other people that are doing good things. Sometimes we as Christians are too slow, we sort of want to reinvent the wheel sometimes. There are sometimes there are a lot, of good, a lot of good things we can get involved with that aren't explicitly Christian that are actually seeking the good of, of human beings. And we can join and, be, and readily say, yes, we're going to join together and do this together. And sometimes we don't do that very well either. This is what I've been thinking about because this is uh, – I'm coming up – one of my best friends is getting married in a couple of weeks. And we're doing the, the very old man tame bachelor party this weekend. But one of our best friends from high school – is actually serving over uh, there, there. He was there, they were stationed in Afghanistan, and and so he's not going to be able to make it. And so this whole time we're kind of thinking there's there really were four of us that were really really close friends in high school, and so there, there's going to be three of us because he's still he can't come back. He's overseas serving right now, and so the whole time we've already been talking about how much we're going to miss him being there. Like the, it's not going to be this. It's going to be fun. We're still going to have a good time and enjoy each other, but it's not going to be the same without our friend there. And you know how that goes. Like, you, you know, you, you sort of go home for Thanksgiving and maybe a friend isn't able to get home. And, and you're used to hanging out and they're not there. And you, sort of, you just miss them. Now, here's the question for you and me. 
Are you the kind of Christian and are we the kind of ministry that if we weren't to show up, that people would actually miss us, that aren't at all Christians, that aren't at all remotely close to Jesus? Would we be missed? Because I want to say that's the kind of Christian Jesus is praying for you to be. That's not the, the, the jerk that knows everything and is trying to shove it down people's throats. Nor are you so detached that you've got, you can't name a single friend who doesn't know Jesus. Would you be missed? Are you missed by people that don't know Jesus when you don't show up? Is RUF missed? Would we be missed if RUF did not exist next semester? Would South Carolina miss us? Would there be people on campus that say, you know, I don't care at all about Jesus, but I really miss RUF? That's a question, right? That's a huge question for us. So first, Jesus is praying that we would be those kind of Christians, that we would be the kind of Christians that the the world would at some level miss because we're so faithfully present. We're present, we're there, but we're different in refreshing ways, right? But here's the second thing he's praying, because he's praying more than that. He's also praying for radical dependence. And this is that verse where he starts talking about the devil. He starts talking about the evil one. If you look at it in verse 15, he says, I do not, this is the second thing he prays, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Second thing he prays, but I ask that you protect them from the evil one. Another way he's saying is I ask that you protect them because they cannot protect themselves. I ask that you protect them because they are utterly of themselves, helpless, needy, powerless. You, they, apart from you, Father, and apart from me, they're absolutely lost. They're absolutely a, a hopeless cause, a lost cause. And what's interesting is he talks about the evil one. And it's funny because you and I, especially in, in our circles, are sometimes slow to talk about Satan. I don't know why we're slow to talk about Satan. We're slow to talk about the devil, but we are. But tonight we're going to talk about it because Jesus prays that the Lord would actually protect us from the evil one. And we pray that. And that's what Jesus, when, he, when the disciples said, Jesus, can you please teach us how to pray? That's one of the first things that, you know, that's one of the huge parts of what he taught them to pray is, Lord, lead us not temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This idea is huge in Jesus, what he's teaching his disciples. And what's funny is when we think about the evil one, there's another place where Paul in 2 Corinthians actually says this. It's really huge for us to get that we often don't think about. He's actually talking to the Corinthians, uh, and he sort of says to them, I don't want you to be unaware of Satan's designs, Satan's schemes in your life. And what's fascinating is, I love the way that one pastor asked us. He says, if you were Satan, if you were the devil, what would your scheme against you be? What would your sort of plan of attack, what would your sort of game plan be against yourself? And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware to think about that. To think about if you were Satan, what would, how would you tempt you? If you were Satan, how would you lead you astray? If you were Satan, how would you lead you off track? How would you lead you away from the Lord is another way of saying it. You know, C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters, that's essentially what the book is about. It's an elder devil writing to a junior devil, trying to teach him the best ways to tempt uh, this this you know, this sort of person, they're, they're human, that they've, they've become a Christian they've been assigned to. And it's a fascinating read on a lot of different levels. But, it's, but one of the things that, that we need to do is we need to think about that in our own lives. The Lord does not, Jesus is praying, Lord, protect them from Satan's schemes, but he doesn't want, the other, other hand, he doesn't want us to be unaware of Satan's schemes. And Satan's schemes are always twofold, generally. You know, there's a tailor-made game plan for you and for me, but they're always two, generally kind of twofold. They're, they're two, two kind of things that are generally his schemes in our lives. Here's, the first is to get us to chase things that we shouldn't chase. To get us to sort of chase things that either ultimately are going to be bad for us or to chase things that ultimately, even worse, don't matter. In other words, to sort of chase things that are just not good things. And that's part of what, you know, and we sort of can know this, this, what, this, how he works in this way in our lives. 
uh, how we can sort of not only waste our time on things that don't matter, but how we can actually pursue and be hooked and addicted to things that are bad for us. But he also, in a sort of trickier, in a kind of trickier way, gives us to chase the right things for the wrong reasons. And this is where it gets so hard. Uh, so sometimes we're chasing wrong things, and, and you know, Augustine would say that it's not the problem that we that we it's not the problem that we have desires. It's the problem that our desires are bad and warped. That's why we sort of say instead of being curved outward and love to God and neighbor, we're often curved inward on ourselves, and we pursue things that are not good for us. We pursue things that are not pleasing to God. But this one's harder because sometimes we're pursuing right things, and yet we're pursuing them for the totally wrong reasons. And this was the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees were doing all the right things. If you look at Luke 10, when Jesus sort of does the, the Pharisee praying in public and the tax collector, remember what the Pharisee prays? He sort of stands, Jesus says he sort of stands in, front, in, the, in the street and he's sort of in his robe and he prays, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he says, I tithe, you know, I give to the poor, you know, I do my religious duty. Thank you that I am not like these other sinners. And he's, very, he's doing all the right things. And yet here you have the tax collector. And you remember the story where Jesus says he, he won't even look up to heaven. And all he does is he keeps his head down and he beats his breast. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that dude went home right with God. This guy who was doing all the right things was still far from God because he was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He was doing it out of pride. He was doing it to show, to show himself and feel himself better than the other people around him. Whereas this guy had the one thing that, that, the only thing that you need to ever come to Jesus, which is to feel and know your need for him. You know, I'll never forget, this, this came home to me pretty majorly when I was in high school. I uh, was part of this youth group, and we went on this mission trip to West Virginia. And I'll never forget this one night where we had two rooms full of guys. So my room was over here where it was like probably five or six guys. Another, another room over here, about five or six guys. And we had this one night where we were sort of off for the night. And my room, me, you know, little kind of trying to, to be super spiritual, Sammy was like, hey, why don't we, in our downtime, why don't we, like, let's have a prayer session. So I was, like, leading our room in prayer. And we, like, prayed for, like, probably an hour. And then this other room, we come to find out the next morning, apparently this other room had kind of gotten into these conversations about, like, the girls, and it got out of control because they were talking all this stuff about the girls, and yet they didn't understand that the girl, all of the girls were sleeping right under them and could hear, like, everything. So it was one of those things where we woke up the next morning and it was, like, Awkward Fest 99 because it was, like, the girls had heard all of the sort of dirty things the guys were saying. But I remember, I remember going up to my youth minister after I found that out. And I remember, I remember so proudly going up to him saying, you know, yeah, that happened. You know what we were doing? We were praying. And I remember like, like beaming, like, <laughs> like we were, we were, and then like, but I remember his response was like, like you could tell he almost wanted to punch me, but because he was a grown man and I was a 16 year old, he didn't punch me. And that was a moment I was like, we were doing the right things, but for the absolute wrong reasons. And that, that might have been more disarming to Jesus than that. Because at least those guys repented the next morning because they were like horrified at what happened. We were still proud in ourselves. And you can't be proud in yourself and yet humble yourself before Jesus. You just can't. Um, so, the, so Jesus is praying. He's praying against this in us. Another way of saying it is Jesus is praying that you wouldn't be proud. Jesus is praying for it. Jesus is going to humble you. This is a news alert. He, he has humbled you, but he's going, because he loves you. And he wants you to know how radically dependent upon God you are, that you will wreck yourself. You'll be so unaware of Satan's schemes. 
that you'll wreck yourself in your pride and in your self-sufficiency and in your self-centeredness. And he's praying that we would humble ourselves and know how much we need not only him, but how much we need the Holy Spirit and how much we need the Bible and how much we need to connect with him in prayer. Um, That's why David in the Psalms prayed, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. You know, so, so often our attitude is, I got this. And so often the Lord is praying for us that our attitude would be, Lord, please take this. Because I, I don't have this. I don't got this. So first he's praying for that we would, uh, that we would uh, have faithful presence. Second, he's praying for radical dependence. And then lastly, think with me for a second, how he's praying for what, we, what I'm going to call gospel difference. Now what's fascinating about Jesus when he starts teaching in the gospels is there actually, Jesus actually lays out, you and I typically think there are two ways to live. You can be a good person and you can be a bad person. And Jesus says, absolutely not. There are actually three ways to live. That you can be a good religious person and totally be lost because you're still full of yourself. You can be sort of a bad, whatever, just worldly person who doesn't care to know the things of God or know God. But Jesus says what he wants for us is to be a gospel person. That the gospel is actually going to be a fundamentally different approach than the religious approach. And it's going to be a fundamentally different approach than the worldly approach. You always have those three approaches. And when Jesus starts teaching in the gospels, he always lays that out. You have the religious approach to things. You have the worldly approach to things. And then you also have the gospel approach to things. So think, for example, when he teaches on prayer. We've talked about that a lot tonight. He's praying here. When Jesus teaches on prayer, remember what he says? He says, don't be like the Pharisees who love to do what the example is. To stand in the streets and be seen. They love for you to catch them praying. They love, that's why some of us, you know, we love to like pray, like, you know, when we are supposed to pray, but then the reality is when we go back to our rooms, we don't pray at all. So he says, don't be like that. And then he says, but don't be like what Jesus says, don't be like the pagans, don't be like the world in the sense they think that God's going to hear them like magic. Like if they say the right words, then God is going to hear them and do something for them. Jesus says, no, I want you to be like a little kid who's quietly, confidently talking to your dad. And that's, I want you to be in your room. Like my kids talk to me at bed at night, like right when I'm tucking them in. They just, they're talking to me, but they're not trying to show up. They're just trying to, they're just talking to me. And Jesus says, pray like that. That's the gospel approach. Now this is interesting because this means, this is, this is one of the ways that we're called to be so different than the world. Is that we're going to look, in so many ways, we're going to look so similar. We're going to be wearing the same stuff. And sometimes we're going to be doing the same stuff, but we're going to, our motivation for doing it is going to be totally radically different. Let's think about two things that I think for you guys and for, just for us that are going to be real for us for all of our lives. I want to talk about food and drink, and I want to talk about money. So first, we're about food and drink. Religious approach to food and drink is often this, especially food these days. It kills me because I am a fast food man. I am a Wendy's man. Wendy's spicy chicken number six was what I grew up on with a Frosty. I've never gone to Wendy's. This is a true story. I've never gone to Wendy's and not gotten a Frosty, which is kind of sad to say. I'm not exaggerating. I've probably been to Wendy's 500 times. I've never not gotten a Frosty. I say that like I'm proud. I say like I'm very proud of that. I'm like, I'm going to die before you guys. That's awesome. Uh, but it's, and especially with drink, you know, it's, I don't know if you, especially if you grew up in, in sort of fundamentalist or, or sometimes Baptist circles, drink is sort of, you know, uh, an extra biblical position can be taken. So a religious approach to food and drink can be, how could you eat that slash drink that? Our worldly approach could be, the Bible actually says, the worldly approach is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Like, let's go to five. I believe that, like, after RUF, let's go to, I'm going to five. I'm going to, I don't, is knock knock still around? Like, I'm going clubbing and knock knock. Like, I, 
Like, let's go. Like, let's hit this thing. Because the, everything, this is pointless. What's the point? Like, let's just go do this. Let's get up, get up in it. Let's get turned. You know, let us, let's do it. And the, the gospel approach, what's interesting is the gospel approach is going to be different than both. Because the gospel approach is sort of saying, the Bible sort of does this. The gospel approach is there's, there's a time for fasting and there's a time for feasting. There's a time for fasting, which is saying, listen, we love the best food and the best drink, but we life is more than this. So we don't have to be enslaved to it. We don't have to be hooked to it. We, we know we can, some of us will enjoy it and yet know what Jesus knows. When he's at the well with the woman of Samaria, when he knows he's, he's thirsty, but he actually, in that moment, as he sort of, you know, she has this realization of his love for her, he's like, that's my bread, that's my drink. So we sort of, we were fasting, but there's also feasting. Jesus also was the kind of person that, that people loved to invite him to parties. Jesus also is the person that turned a ton of water into wine. Jesus, you know, the, Jesus is not afraid to throw a good party, which is going to be part of what he says. The, the, the Lord's Supper, you know, the Lamb's Supper, the last, you know, when Jesus finally is we're re- reunited with him, it's going to be an incredible party. There's a time for fasting, there's a time for feasting. The gospel changes the way that we do it. We're not enslaved to it, we can enjoy it. We're not enslaved to it because we have Jesus and the freedom of Jesus, but we can enjoy it. And when we enjoy it, we're going to enjoy it to the glory of Jesus because we know that ultimately we can enjoy him with it, right? So food and drink. But then also think with me about money. And we could talk a long time about money, but religious approach to money. I'm going to make a lot, but I'm going to be conservative. I'm going to give a little. I'm going to give enough for people to know that I'm the kind of person that gives, but I'm really kind of in it just to make a lot. Worldly approach is not that different, but sometimes it can be like, I love the parks and right, like treat yourself, treat yourself. So we're going to like, we're not afraid to make a ton, but we're going to actually spend a lot of it on us and the things that we like and the things that we love. And the gospel says something far different. Yes, you're going to make as much as you can. Yes, you're going to save as much as you can, but then you're ultimately going to give as much as you can. That's why Paul, when he actually says about Jesus, he says, when he's trying to get the people to give to like ministry, you know, remember he says to them in 2 Corinthians 8? He's for, he says that he passes the gospel to him. He says, For you know the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you through him might become rich. And the thing that you and I miss is like Jesus did that with joy. The Bible says, For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. That Jesus left the riches, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's dying race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And, and, and Paul is saying, when you get the gospel, you're going to become not just an incredibly, incredibly generous person, but you're going to become joyful in your giving. You know, it's Christmas, and like, this, it was sad to me, is for me, and I, know, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but for me, for Christmas this year, I've already always almost been thinking, like, I've been making my wish list. Like, I've got my J. Crew wish list, like, full. And, like, no one's, like, no one's going to go check my J. Crew. Like, I don't know why I'm even doing it, because... I'm not gonna like send it. I don't know why I'm doing it. But anyways, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about me, and I'm not thinking at all. And you know, and the, but it doesn't work for me to say bad Christian. How could you do that? That doesn't work. Shame's not gonna make me a joyful giver, right? Like I'm not gonna be like, go serve the poor. Like that's not gonna work. But the only thing that's going to work is when I see and then over and over and over just what Jesus did, not just for me, but for us. And, and when I see he who was so rich that he so willingly did, he, he so generously gave. In other words, Jesus didn't just give 10% of himself. You know, that's sort of weird how we as Christians do that. Like, okay, Lord, like, 
I know all of this is purely your grace to me, but I'm going to give you 10% because I got you. Like, that's not the way Jesus didn't say, I'm going to give you 10% of me, 90% for myself, 10% for you guys. And we know, like, that's why some people say the tithe, we could talk about a lot, does it still apply? Some people would say the tithe, no, it doesn't apply, but you know what does apply? What we call grace giving, which is 100%. In other words, saying you're incredibly generous with your stuff. And that's the gospel approach, right? Um, so how are we going to ever become these people? That's the question. How are we ever going to become people who are faithfully present, radically dependent, and then also gospel different, where the gospel changes the way we relate to everything? And it's seeing, it's seeing three things about Jesus. On the one hand, thinking about faithful presence, the, the beauty of it is that Jesus actually is in us. It's one of the weird things about Scripture is the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And one of the things that you and I miss sometimes is just being a Christian but engaged in the world, people can see it. William Still is a pastor in Scotland, and he was asked, he wrote this book to pastors, and he, had this, he has this great story where he says he, he went on this visit to see people in his congregation, and all he did was just sit and eat with them. And as he left, the people were talking, I guess, to him afterwards, and he sort of, they sort of said, he just seems so normal. He seems so much at our level. And he was like, yeah, I'm at your level, because all I want to do is be around you. And, and it's inevitably, Jesus is going to sort of just come out. And sometimes we way overthink that. But part of, part of the hope is that Jesus is he's, he's in us. But then second, how are we going to ever become radically dependent is to know that Jesus is with us. That Jesus, every step of the way, that he, that there's no, that he says there, he's not going anywhere. There are going to be lots of relationships that, that, you're, that are lost. Your relationship with Jesus will never be lost because Jesus is so committed to you, he's not going anywhere. And, and he says, like, you, you can, like, I am here. I am here. And I'm not going anywhere. And, and, and come, that's what we just said before I have. Come to me. All you are labored, weary laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And then thirdly, Jesus is not just in us, he's with us, but he's also for us. That he's not against us. That it's not that he's sort of, you know, sometimes we have this view of Jesus where we're over here, we're here, he's there, and he's sort of constantly judging us. But the Bible says Jesus has come here, he's by our side, he's for us. He's, he's in us, he's with us, and he's for us. And the more and the more you get that and sort of see and know Jesus in that way, the more you're going to become these kind of things. Um, I love uh, sort of uh, this illustration. My wife went to this women's conference. I'll close with this. And um, she, the, the woman that was speaking is actually one of our friends. She had this great illustration where she was talking about this idea. And she said, you know, part of the way that we as Christians are supposed to relate to the world is like this. Just imagine we go to this island and, we're, and we, or we go to the beach and we go to the ocean. And we're sort of enjoying the ocean and we're, 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 enjoying the, you know, we're enjoying the beach, we're, we're swimming in the ocean, we're just, we're just you know, being in it and enjoying it. But then we notice that the people in this island start drinking the, wa- the water. And we kind of think, should we also drink the water? And we sort of n- know like that will kill us. And that's what she sort of said, this is part of how we're called to relate to the world. There's a sense in which we're going to enjoy it. But we're not going to drink it. Because we've tasted something, but we've tasted living water. That we, we know there's something better. We know there's something better. We've tasted something better. We're going to absolutely enjoy it. But we're not going to drink it because we've tasted living water. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are still, even in this moment, praying for us. Um, Lord, that you have not stopped. And um, Lord, I think about when Peter, when you told Peter that Satan has asked to sift you, but I've prayed for you. And Lord, um, you can say the same about us. That uh, in so many ways, uh, your faithfulness, um, you've never stopped. You've never stopped. And Lord, I pray that as we pray and as we walk with you, that you would let us into those places uh, to know how you're praying for us and to know that 
that we'd be encouraged that that's the way that you love us and that's the way that you still see us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. You think I'd leave you dead?